Well, our New Testament lectionary readings have progressed at this point to Hebrews 13, which we just read together. But as we explore that text, I actually want to back up to Hebrews 11, where we have spent most of the month of August. Remember, the author of Hebrews has encouraged the reader to endure, to set aside the weight that slows us down, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Persevere in the life of faith. Keep the faith. Finish the race. Because it is possible to trust. It is possible to obey over the long haul. How do we know that? Well, we look back to Hebrews 11. We look to the examples of saints of old, these women and men in the Old Testament. Some were obviously major players in the story being told, like Abraham or Moses. Some were much more marginal or seemingly inconsequential on the surface, but they all had this one thing in common. They all had very limited, visible evidence of the promises they had received, yet they continued to walk in obedience and to trust. Trust and obedience, and for that sort of active faith, they are honored, commended. Today I want to spend our time looking at one last individual mentioned in this chapter. I get that we've only looked at a select few throughout the month. We talked briefly about Abel and Enoch, Abraham and Sarah. So there are many more mentioned that we are just going to pass over. But before you think I'm being dismissive of those important stories, I'm actually just trying to follow the model of Hebrews itself, because we read this in verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets went on to do all of these incredible things. So I am going to rely on the same excuse. What more shall I say? We just don't have time to look at all of the characters. So we are going to focus on one additional, seemingly marginal player in the story that we read about in Hebrews 11, verse 31, which says this, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So we find here a reference to the story of a woman named Rahab. She's not a character that necessarily gets a lot of airtime in our theological discussions, certainly not many kids' Bible story times, and perhaps that's for obvious reasons that would require a lot of additional explaining. And while she isn't the star of the show by any means, the New Testament actually gives her a place of prominence in two really important lists. First, we find her, a Gentile no less in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. We also find her mentioned here alongside the other heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 in this sort of hall of fame. And if you would permit me, we can just lean into the Christian cliches, the hall of faith. Austin, throughout the month of August, continued to make that joke as we were talking about Hebrews 11. But in that hall of fame, we find Rahab. 
Now, the first mention of Rahab, we actually have to back up to the book of Joshua. This is right after Moses' death. So finally, after escaping Egypt and wandering in the wilderness for decades, the people of Israel are on the east side of the Jordan River. They are just on the brink of entering the land promised to Abraham centuries prior. Now, during Moses' life, Joshua had become his assistant of sorts, almost like an apprentice training to become Israel's leader when Moses finally departs. So when Moses dies, Joshua is commissioned to lead the charge, to take the people of Israel on this quest in order to take possession of the land of Canaan. After they cross the Jordan River, the first city they reach in Canaan is Jericho. And in preparation for what seems to be an impossible feat, Joshua sends a couple of spies into the city to gather information, to scope out the situation, which brings us to Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, where we read this. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So the two spies enter Jericho and they go directly to what appears to be a brothel, the house of Rahab. And this is where they choose to stay. It's an interesting choice, especially for these Israelites Rahab was undoubtedly a Canaanite, not a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She was a Gentile, most likely spent her life worshiping pagan gods, and that alone would have put these spies in a bit of a precarious position. But there's more because we're told that she was also a prostitute, which would lend to uh, additional difficulties for these Israelites. Prostitution is often referred to as the oldest profession in the world. And in the ancient, it's clearly what was a part of life in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, not altogether unlike today, it wasn't necessarily considered to be a noble profession. So whether Rahab was selling sex herself or just running this brothel, there's some disagreement about which case it would be. But she probably was not viewed as a model citizen, certainly not by these Israelite spies. So why do they choose her house for their lodging on this night? Perhaps it was out of convenience. I mean, maybe she's the only one that is welcoming them in. Maybe it was from a place of utility. Well, we are entering this foreign land um, Maybe this is how we are going to go undetected in this environment. When people start asking, who are these two strange men visiting Rahab's house? Well, who cares? That actually wasn't uncommon at all. But it doesn't work out as they had planned. Apparently, they don't blend in as they had perhaps hoped. People begin to notice. Word eventually gets back to the king. There are a couple of Israelite spies staying with Rahab, and the king says, okay, Rahab, bring these men to me. So she realizes that she has been caught. 
begins to craft her cover story. Cover story, which is also known by uh, parents of teenagers around the world in simple terms as a lie. The cover story. Cover for me. Don't tell mom what I'm actually doing. Tell her I have a study group tonight, and that's why I will miss curfew. Not that that is autobiographical, but you can imagine. So she is admitting, I can't deny it at this point. I've got to fess up to what is going on. Yes, I did have these men staying in my house, but I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know where they were from. And, and they left just before the gates of the city closed for the night. If you leave now and begin your chase, you will have a good chance of catching up with them. So hurry, get out of here. Go and find them. Well, unbeknownst to the king, which is perhaps sort of a humorous point in the story, she had taken the spies to her roof and hidden them amongst the stalks of flax and instructed them, look, I know that your God has given our land into your hands. We, we've heard all about the stories about how your God delivered you from slavery in Egypt. Our people are becoming very afraid. They are seeing the writing on the walls. They, they know what is about to happen. What is more, I perceive that your God is actually the true God. So she lays all of her cards on the table. Since, since I have taken you in, since I covered for you when your lives were in danger, will you also deal kindly with my family? So they agreed to these terms. They instruct her, we'll tie this scarlet cord out of your window, and when we come to take possession of the land, we will spare your house. And then they make their escape. Apparently her house is built into the side of the, the walls to the city, so escape is quite easy. They just lower these spies down from out of the window, and they are off. And this is actually as far as we're going to make it in the story. Um, you, you can read the rest of the story and see that it progresses as you would expect at this point. But at this point in the story, I think it is fairly obvious that the Bible is not a collection of sanitized stories or these little nuggets of wisdom that show us how to make it through life unscathed, and that's pretty much the totality of the value of our scriptures. I mean, this story is, if it was a film, it's not a PG story, and actually, if you continue reading Joshua, it actually gets much less kid-friendly than this. And I think one of the reminders here is that God's story of redemption is not just this sort of fairy tale with a moral at the end. Well, well, be good people because of all of these stories. It is much more complex than that. It is a story that has swept up into its movement these real people in their real lives, as troubling as the details might be, God uses these imperfect sinners to advance his purposes of redemption. We might wish that the story wasn't so fraught with sexual immorality or scandal or violence, which if you continue to read Joshua, you find plenty of that. But those troubling aspects of the story aren't sanitized to make it more presentable or palatable for us. This is the story 
as it happened. I liked how, how Eugene Peterson put it in his introduction to the book of Joshua in the message. He said this, biblical religion has a low tolerance for great ideas or sublime truths or inspirational thoughts apart from the people or places in which they occur. God's great love and purposes for us are worked out in the messes, storms and sins, blue skies, daily work and dreams of our common lives, working with us as we are and not as we should be. God works in the messes of our lives. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is actually quite encouraging. I won't speak for you, but my life is messy. And I'm reminded as I read a story like this or the rest of the book of, of Joshua that the mess that is my life doesn't keep us from participating in God's kingdom and pursuing consistently new life in Jesus Christ. As we talked about last week, that return to the baptism, what Martin Luther talked about, returning and, and purging whatever pertains to the old creature that the new creature might be brought forth. Now, there is much that we could say about the story of Rahab. This woman with a questionable reputation becomes one of the first female characters in the biblical story who actually takes a very active role. She's not a passive bystander. She, Rahab is a heroine in the story. She becomes a symbol of salvation for Israel, despite her questionable past, despite her lack of honor, especially to the Israelites. She is now honored as an important part of the story. And here in Hebrews 11, she is commended for her faith. And how do we know that she had faith? Well, her faith is expressed quite simply in her hospitality. This is what verse 30 says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. James, the brother of our Lord, also connects Rahab's actions in extending this hospitable welcome to the spies. James connects that to his argument that Faith without works is dead. Rahab actually had a vibrant, living faith, and we know this because of her actions in extending hospitality. She had faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though it was certainly a, a newfound faith. Again, she's a Canaanite, in all likelihood spent her life worshiping pagan gods, but her faith in the God of Israel was kindled, she fans that flame and trusts. Again, if we think of biblical faith in terms of trust and obedience, Rahab is a prime example. She trusts that despite perhaps the personal hardship her newfound faith might invite, her faith continues to persist and is expressed in a friendly welcome to the spies, thereby not only preserving their lives, but also helping usher Israel into the promised land. So, 
It shouldn't surprise us then when two chapters later, the author of Hebrews commands hospitality of all followers of Jesus. Now, in chapter 13, the beginning of the chapter, this is right near the end of the book of Hebrews, we find this common feature that is often used in letters of antiquity to conclude. It's sort of haphazard. It feels very disjointed, an unrelated list of various ethical instructions. We read it a few minutes ago. Remember those who are in prison. Remember that God judges the sexually immoral, so maintain honor in marriage. Avoid the love of money. Be content with what you have. Jesus is with you and and helps you, whatever your situation. But all of that begins back in verses 1 and 2, actually jumping to verse 2 after that instruction towards brotherly love. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Show hospitality to strangers. It's pretty straightforward, I guess. You know, hospitality was an honorable disposition in ancient Greco-Roman culture as well as ancient Jewish culture. But for the people of God, the call into hospitable living was not just about being polite. This wasn't some sort of uh, version of southern hospitality that God is calling his people to. No, this is a way of life that we are called to because it is necessary. So if we think about the context of these instructions, travelers to new cities in the ancient world were also in a pretty precarious position, as were the spies. Inns were not like modern-day hotels. They could be quite unsavory and even dangerous places, So because of that reality, God's people are called to extend genuine help for those who are in danger and are called to do it from a place of joy. This is what we read in 1 Peter 4.9. It's not something we do from a place of begrudging compliance. Peter says, do it without grumbling. The author of Hebrews, do not neglect to show hospitality. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I don't know about you, but as a kid, this line sort of spooked me. Like, I'm not interested in going through life like angels in the outfield trying to determine who is an actual human being and who is some supernatural being. I'm I'm just not interested in it. So I, I would always, you know, just sort of try to ignore that. And to be honest, I don't know that the point the author of Hebrews is making is that you're probably going to host a supernatural being, Um, so you better be careful. I, I think the point is even if you don't host some sort of supernatural being, which you probably won't, I admit that I am open to that possibility, but you probably won't, and I think this is probably at least in part, a reference to the visitors that Abraham hosts and extends hospitality to. But I think the the major point that is being driven home is that even if you don't host supernatural beings, you are always, as you extend hospitality, going to be hosting messengers from God to you. 
And actually, if we read the words of Jesus, there is a much more incentivizing rationale for hospitable living. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Whatever you don't do for the least of these, you don't do for me. Now, I think it's possible that all of this taken together would lead us to the wrong-headed belief that the impetus for hospitable living is ultimately selfish. Well, I am going to be a hospitable person because it is going to benefit me. Think of Rahab. She extends hospitality to the spies with hopes of being rescued herself. Or think of chapter 13. I will extend hospitality if there's a chance I'm going to entertain angels, or in my case, if I'm going to entertain angels, I'm not going to be a hospitable person. I don't think that's how we understand this call. I think if we take all of these stories together, we could rightly, quite simply, understand hospitable living as the practice of extending welcome offering food and shelter to those who are in need while not expecting anything in return. Extending welcome, not because it benefits me in a quantifiable way, although I do think the benefits of hospitable living are immeasurable, but that's not my motivation. I want to become, and all of this is said as a goal, not necessarily a current reality in my life, but something that I am striving for. I want to become a hospitable person because I want to live in a way that promotes life for somebody else. In the New Testament, hospitality is to be extended to insiders and outsiders alike. It is quite simply the love of a guest. Whatever group that guest is coming from, But the question that I am faced with is, how in the world am I ever going to extend hospitality to an outsider if I cannot extend hospitality to those in this room? In some ways, I think this room or the communities that we are a part of, maybe not this room, but other communities, those become for us a training grounds where we learn to live into the ways of hospitality, not so that we alone benefit from it, but so that we are trained to extend that hospitality outsiders. Hospitality is not this arbitrary command. It's not a random act of kindness. For followers of Jesus, this is a response that is birthed out of our faith. We have received the welcome of God, and as we become more and more aware of that welcome, we are pushed to extend the same welcome of the Father through our acts of love. So we, as followers of Jesus, want to make the space that we occupy hospitable to life. How can I live in such a way that promotes life for the people around me? How can I live in such a way that provides a sense of belonging, making another person feel at home? Not like a charity case, not like a burden, but genuinely feel at home. This can and certainly does involve tangible necessities like food and shelter. But I think to limit our pursuit of hospitable living to those tangible necessities would Um, 
cause us to miss out on the full implications of this call. I think it also includes relational connection. And I think one of the reasons this is so important to consider is because hospitality is not something that is limited to the wealthy. It's not limited to the homeowners among us who have a a physical space to invite a guest to. Perhaps those with greater means among us also do carry a greater responsibility in this regard. But renting a small apartment or living in a college dorm or in a parent's basement is not sort of a get-out-of-hospitality-free card. There are some in the community, there are some in this community who I believe have been blessed with a genuine gift of hospitality. We all know this when we experience it. I have encountered it at the hands of several in this room today. And it is a true blessing to the community, those who just exude this hospitality. This is how they approach every aspect of their lives. But this is not a task that is reserved for those with a natural inclination or a particular gifting in the ways of hospitality. This is a call for every follower of Jesus. It's a call that is repeated throughout our scriptures, Old and New Testament. We find it implicitly in the life of Jesus. He lives hospitably, and he does so despite having no wealth, despite not having a place to lay his head, as it were, and yet he gives and receives table fellowship without partiality. He both gives hospitality and receives hospitality, and he does so impartially. So we find it implicitly in the life of Jesus. This is how he carries himself. It is also repeated explicitly throughout the epistles. We've already looked at a couple of these occurrences, but I think in all of them, one of the things that we learn about hospitable living is that it requires effort. It is not limited to those who have a natural gifting in these ways, but it requires practice. It requires a rehabituating of our natural inclinations and dispositions, which for me are often to focus entirely on myself and my own comfort, and when I do that, I always avoid hospitable living. Romans 12, Paul says, seek to show hospitality. Put another way, practice hospitality. There's this active call. It must be intentional. It requires work to, to go against my natural inclinations. In Hebrews 13, the injunction is do not neglect why, would, why does the author of, of Hebrews use that wording? I think because it's really easy to neglect. And presumably, there were many who were neglecting hospitable living. Those muscles of hospitality must be exercised. It involves effort, but it is effort that we are willing to engage in because we understand this is who we are and it's what we are called to do. We have received an incredible welcome of our God and have been called to extend that same welcome to others. Anybody can do it, and we all should 
be working towards this type of life. It doesn't require a big bank account. It doesn't require a sprawling home. All it requires is an open and willing heart, eager to open yourself to another, to try to create an environment in your sphere that promotes life and well-being, not just of, of me and those who are closest to me, but of all that I come into contact with. All it requires is an open and willing heart. Kevin, if you want to come up as we transition into a time where we approach the table, which we, we conclude every, every service in this way, and I think especially on a day like today, it is so appropriate. As we come to this table, the table of our Lord, this is an act whereby we respond to the hospitable welcome we have received from God, and we accept that call to extend the same welcome to extend the same life of nurture to others. Thanks be to God. Would you stand with us? We are going to gather today around the table of our Lord. I believe that we have all been invited to this table. This is not an invitation that I extend. This is not an invitation that the church extends. It's an invitation of our Lord. As we approach the table, be encouraged. Our God is a hospitable God who welcomes you, who has invited you to himself. Come and receive. But as you do, know that the reception of this gift is not the end of the story, but as we receive, we go to do likewise. So as we come to the table, we'll make two lines down these center aisles. If you're new or visiting with us, we, we invite you to the table. Jesus invites you to the table to receive from him. We'll make two lines. As you get to the front, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. I want to say a prayer by way of invitation. Lord Jesus, you welcomed all who came into your presence. As we receive your welcome and accept your invitation to the table today, may we go forth in your spirit to reflect that same ministry of hospitality. May your light shine in our hearts this day. Remove from us anything that would stand in the way of radiating your presence. We pray that your grace may always proceed and follow after us. That we may continually be given to good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. One God. Now and forever. Amen.